0: what's important what's important is that you like it kick it volume microphone check 1 2 1 2 microphone check 1 2 what is this mm. Welcome to Hello, Hello, Valentina Rizzotti. Yes. You're in the house. Let's do this.
1: Stop it.
0: I mean, we could could do like a DJ jam the whole Uh, session, but I think people want to hear from you. Yes. I think you might be my fifth or sixth guest.
1: Great, very happy to be here.
0: Still gives you room to be the best.
1: Ooh, challenge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It sounds like you've been preparing
1: well not really nobody
0: else no. got to prepare why do you get to prepare yeah
1: no because I like I like it to be spontaneous you know oh you do yeah
0: <laughs> wonderful well other people might know you as vale
1: exactly or val exactly In our writing. French or, or Brit- English people they go with val and, yeah, they go and with you go vale and vale Italian Uh vale
0: and Valentina is a little formal mm-hmm. like your mother calls you that
1: no, my mother doesn't call me that. My, mm-hmm. mother, my mother calls me in like, a very different series of names. She calls me Natasha because she, she did What? Yeah, she wanted to call me Natasha. No. And then... But I totally don't... Never, Your Natasha macho was,
0: father like, insisted that it be Valentina? Yeah,
1: they aligned on a, on a Valentina. Mm. It was a very good collab.
0: Mm-hmm. And she still goes with Natasha. It doesn't sound exactly like a collab to me. Uh,
1: I know, I know. Uh,
0: from a small town somewhere near Bologna, is it?
1: Correct, I'm from Ferrara.
0: Ferrara.
1: It's um, beautiful, um, a beautiful,
0: beautiful I'm looking it up on the map city. right now.
1: Yeah, it's in the region of Emilia-Romagna. Uh, so, north, uh, northern Italy, and uh, it's, uh, it was one of the most important cities in, during the Renaissance period,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, because the family of uh Estenzi, um, Oh, it's kind
0: of near, yeah, it's north of Bologna, south of Venice, it's sort of inland a bit from the, from the Caspian Sea. Not Caspian, sorry, what the hell is that thing called? Adriatic.
1: Adriatic,
0: Adriatico, yeah. yeah. Hmm. And who is your uh, signature artist that everyone talks about in Ferrara?
1: So um I really like uh, ludovico Ariosto. I think ludovico Ariosto is like uh, is like a very very important like uh writer um of uh-huh. Ferrara. Um but uh, probably the the most beautiful movie that has been like uh, based based on the city is mm-hmm. called Il Giardino dei Finzi Contini. Uh The which
0: Garden is of the End of Finzi Contini. Oh, what's Finzi Contini? Uh,
1: it was a family. It oh. was a family in Ferrara, and uh-huh. um, Giorgio Bassani wrote a book about this family, mm-hmm. and then Fellini made the movie.
0: Really? I don't know this film by Mr. Fellini. I mean, I know a bunch of other films. How do I not know this one? Giardino. Or maybe it was Visconti. Maybe it
1: was Visconti. Visconti would David.
0: be more old school. It's like black and white. It's like realist. Maybe it was that
1: one, yeah.
0: Uh-huh. Okay, so what you're trying to say is you come from a small town with a handful of people you're proud of, but other yes. people don't really know. It. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you grew up there and you studied in Italy?
1: Yes, I studied uh, my bachelor's in uh, yeah. Milan. Oh. And. Uh,
0: Milano. I, I, think that, I think the big cities nearby are, are awesome. I think Venice is beautiful, but it's a bit weird. Yeah. I think Milan is amazing.
1: Milan is great. Yeah, it's really, really great. Did you go
0: recently when we did that, uh, whatever Sa- that thing is called, the mobile?
1: Salone del Mobile. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was. It was great. It was fantastic to see how Milan changed during uh-huh. the, during these last uh, five to ten years. Uh-huh. Uh, so. Did it's you your party great. big time? We did party at the UB, uh-huh. yeah, we did. Did you go to that
0: Duomo or whatever the heck they have? They have some we, nice church, don't they?
1: We did. We actually partied in front of the Duomo, oh, on a rooftop in front of the Oh, my goodness. Road. So, yeah,
0: so, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, Italian roots, and then at a certain point you get to MIT? Yes. Or did yes. you, like, work first?
1: I, I studied, uh, so my first year of master's in Paris. Yeah, um, like a business thing? Yes, at uh, HEC. HEC. Mm.
0: Exactly. Fancy. And, uh, I think you're going to add to the whole Kwame preponderance of fancy degrees. Oh,
1: yeah, very likely. Uh, mm-hmm. Kwame is great.
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. uh, but, yeah, so I, I spent my first year there uh, of master's, and then I did a gap year.
0: Oh, really? Yes. It a European sort of thing. You basically took the year off and went skiing?
1: No, no. I, I worked. I did two internships. Oh. Uh, one internship. Well, that's
0: like you worked for a year. Uh,
1: no, no, gap yeah. year. I know,
0: I know. I thought gap year is supposed to bum around.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, I think in the, so in the French uh, school system, uh-huh. they they tend to have this gap year. It's not oh. very common in other like countries' co school, school uh-huh. systems. It's about work
0: a little bit. It's about, it's about um, yeah. You do like an a stage somewhere, and you, you learn some things. Exactly. Uh, and it was only one. I thought Aix is like a normal business school. It's not two years.
1: So, yeah, they have, they have two years, uh-huh. but the second year, uh, ins- instead of doing it at HUC, mm-hmm. I, I went to MIT.
0: Ah, that's and, your Sloan connection. Uh, so I did a double, double
1: degree, exactly. Oh,
0: how cool. So
1: that was really great. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was like, I think, so my year in Boston was, to, to date, the mm-hmm. best year of my life.
0: To date? So,
1: yes. What happened?
0: Say. Wait, have you not finished a year yet at Notel?
1: yeah yeah see I have not it's only been idea. a few no, months no, no. we'll have exactly
0: to check back, and and back
1: how long ago did you join so what, what, sorry? how long
0: ago did you join us
1: so in January January
0: 22nd oh not long at all yeah. oh my god it seems like oh wow it seems like you've been here a long time I
1: know right There's
0: like... wow wow so I guess I mean you sort of work on the internet now is that what you always were doing
1: no. thinking about or whatever no my my, my objective in uh-huh. life was actually to to give back to to the community mm. and um, that's why I specialized in development economics and econometrics oh, wow. in my studies and I wanted to work um, in an in a international organization like the uh-huh. IMF. Uh, yeah, the or whatever. But I, I did the thesis, actually, in Washington in collaboration with the IMF and uh-huh. the Pearson's Institute of Economics, and I realized that they were having a very static
0: It's a bit slow, life. it's a bit slow. And
1: it's not very, you know, much like who I am. Yeah. So that's why I decided to go more into the business side. And, yeah, uh, and
0: search for impact perhaps there. I mean, in a, yes, yes. Yeah. It is very slow. I have a lot of friends and family that have done, done that kind of stuff, and it's quite tedious.
1: Yeah, it's like...
0: But I recently read Amartya Sen,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, who I'd never read before, and he's like an important development economics person, and I think the famous book by him is uh, Development is Freedom. Mm-hmm. Have you ever run across it? I've heard of it. Oh my God, tears in my eyes. <laughs> I'm reading this thing and I'm like crying on a flight. I think it's easy to cry on planes. Like some cheesy romantic comedy will make you cry. So easy. Well, for me, a Nobel Prize winning work of economics brought the same tears streaming down my face.
1: And there is like um, a great economist who's actually a a professor at MIT. Her Mm -hmm. name is uh, Esther Duflo. Um, She's French. And she's uh, one of of the economists that I prefer because she really uh, goes and tests a hypothesis. Oh, is that the Poverty Action
0: Lab? Oh, yeah, and there's an Indian guy, right? Banerjee or something?
1: Yeah, they work together.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I saw a talk recently at, um, you know, like some fancy, like the Council on Foreign Relations here in New York on Park Avenue. It was very fancy, but that guy was inspiring.
1: Incredible. Really amazing. And
0: actually, like, the, the insights into psychology that they surface and exploit to try to fix problems among the folks that have the least, it's amazing and actually there's bigger and broader lessons that come out of that so in a way like by backing those guys and being involved in the work that they do to help alleviate really the people in the most desperate health and economic conditions there are so many other kinds of learnings to get from that
1: Yeah, like this
0: okay. one about attention I was really amazed by a section of his talk about attention he was like we try to get families to immunize their children because it saves lives and they just like don't go and we're like oh come on please go it's free they'll come to your house and they just don't go and um then they were like okay we'll just pay you we'll just like pay you up front if you agree to show up at a certain time and get immunized we'll give you like some food or we'll give you some money and what they observed in doing that was the cognitive load of just like making an appointment that's a week away and having the dread of like trying to drag your kid and get off from work. Or if you don't, or if you have work and try to take them to go get immunized was so distracting and stressful for people that they would avoid it. If you give them a little bit of food so that their anxieties of that week are just for that week are reduced. Suddenly they have like space in their mind to have attention to. As basic as like a doctor's appointment that could save your life. It's it's a huge insight. It's amazing.
1: So absolutely, absolutely. And they did an experiment on deworming, because actually one of the major causes of like children mortality is worms in developing countries. Oh. And um, oh, deworming. Deworming, warming, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, actually, by investing only, I think like one dollar or one point five dollars, they like they prove that you can save like thousands of thousands of like children's life. One dollars, one point five per child.
0: Wow. Yeah. So amazing. It's what a really great field.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess um, the nobility of it is hard to match uh, when you go off and start working in business, but I guess at some point you decided to do it. Is that when you got to HelloFresh or...?
1: Yeah, so when after, um, so after my year at MIT, I decided to... So I had an offer to pursue a PhD afterwards, hmm. uh, but I decided not to accept it. In like
0: management that. or in economics? In
1: economics, hmm. in, ma- in macroeconomics, hmm. uh, but not, no, I wouldn't... It's have like been,
0: the best economics department in the world.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. Can like MIT- you defer?
0: Can you still go back?
1: I every time. Oh my God! Like I, I think about it all some, all the time because I still read a lot of that literature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very passionate about it from an intellectual standpoint and from um, from a human standpoint. But um, I know that, like you know, for me to to achieve that goal, I would really need to take like kind of a different track than the one of like being in a cubicle and writing papers. That's why I really respect a lot like people like Esther Duflo because she doesn't just create an hypothesis and make calculations on the hypothesis, but she goes on the ground and she said, okay, let me actually invest Mm -hmm. the $1 per child and see what Mm -hmm. happens.
0: Experimental economics.
1: Exactly, exactly. And uh, when I was, so when I was doing this thesis, I was also focusing on on economics, but, um, and development economics, but more on the side of public-private partnerships collaborations. So um, I basically um, used the, f- the framework of game theory and the repeated games um, and the pr- public-private partnerships framework, which is more economics-based. And I proved that the Nash equilibrium in a series of repeated games for, to, cu- to cure the problem of the resource curse is in the public-private partnership area. Oh, hmm. they, they, you may have gotten a
0: little technical there. So the resource curse is places that have a lot of something, like diamonds or oil. Exactly. It's kind of like an irony, I guess, because these countries in some way are very rich, but it's a curse because it creates this like terrible set of incentives. You get governments that are very extractive, and so these places are screwed up And what you're saying. And then Nash equilibrium is another nerdy idea about the stable point in repeat games or any game, like what's the right move. And I guess what you're saying is you figured out some way to show, you said prove, that's a very strong word to use, that public-private partnership as a framework, as opposed to government only, or private only, or nonprofit only, or international development only, that maybe those partnerships have a a stable point where the right move, the incentivized move for all parties is to solve the resource curse. Correct,
1: and they took as example um, Botswana, which Mm -hmm. is the one you just mentioned about diamonds they have like uh, one of the largest uh, uh, reservoir of diamonds in the in the world Um, as a good example because they were able to implement these public private partnerships over time so in a series of repeated games versus equatorial guinea Mm -hmm. which with oil reserve uh, they were actually they didn't implement the public private partnership framework and actually Um, there is still a huge problem of resource curse that uh, nobody has been able to fix yet.
0: What distinguishes a partnership from the standard way, like an Exxon will go to Saudi and get a contract to drill oil or something? Those aren't partnerships?
1: Uh, Not necessarily, because you need to have a vested interest by both the public sector and the private sector in order to make sure that the uh, incentives are aligned and to make sure that the, the increase in GDP from those resources are actually, is actually also given to uh, split between the people in a way and um, distributed across the population.
0: I see. So like a straight arm's length deal, like we will do an auction, you will bid, you can drill some stuff and you can just make the money that you make. That isn't a broad enough set of incentives. No, in fact, that's like a counterparty risk sort of thing where the other side wants to screw you and you want to screw them. And
1: exactly yeah. because like you you need these... In fact, in fact, for Botswana they created the Debswana, and in de, like Debswana is like, is a great representation of this private p- public private partnership because the ownership is a split. So like, in
0: oh, fact, of the entity, the equity of the entity is shared. Huh. Yeah, that's that's quite. A, I, I think we're going to find ourselves talking about this in. Um, in the no relationships with owners in time to come because a lot of them have preferred to have the relationship with us that we're just a customer, pay them some money, there's a contract, it defines a very narrow set of obligations on both sides and we go our own way. As we get larger and we start shaping the whole market, it will be important that we have more shared benefit.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, like uh, incentives needs, need to be aligned in order to get to that Nash equilibrium, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if there's no cooperation, uh, th- inevitably uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be like one party will try to deviate from uh, the ultimate goal.
0: You'll have to help us create the game theory model for this.
1: I'm all up for it.
0: So you're working on Nash equilibrium, and you're like, okay, groceries. <laughs>
1: Actually, in the meantime, before that, I went to I, I I didn't have I didn't know what to really do next,
0: right? Mm-hmm. So I said, right, because you're like I'm an academic. What do I do? Oh, uh, like, oh, will I'm anyone gonna... hire me? I should work for like a consulting firm.
1: There you go. Uh-huh. That's what I did. In fact, <laughs> it was spot on. So 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 it's so, 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 like you know what I I want to be exposed to a variety of industries, and that's where I I decided to move back to Paris, mm. and I work at at Oliver Wyman. Um, oh, for the head and health, and I got exposed to like. A lot of interesting industries. Actually, some projects were like also on retail. Mm. Uh, some other projects in the satellite industry, which was uh, by far like the most interesting one. Wow! Um, and so and so after one year and a half that they spent there, I think I I thought I already like capped the the learning curve, mm. um, and uh, I I felt it was a little bit too corporate, and that's what I decided to um, to move into uh, the entrepreneurship world.
0: I see. Well, I mean, basically these strategy firms. Are- are the recruiting ground for Ali Samver. It's presumably someone just called you.
1: Yeah, so I, I, before, before Berlin, I spent one year in Dusseldorf, mm-hmm. and I was working for a company called Spring Lane. Spring Lane? Yes. I don't know them. It's um, basically a marketplace uh-huh. uh, selling um, food accessories, wines, and spirits, um, and I was country manager Italy and China. What? <laughs> <That was laughs>
0: what? From Dusseldorf.
1: From Dusseldorf. Now exactly. the Italy
0: part, I presume you could get your head around that.
1: The China, China
0: thing—you were running remotely from Dusseldorf. You speak any Chinese? A,
1: no, no, no. I was using was avid consumer of Google Translator services. Really? <laughs> and
0: how big was the team in China? There were like people
1: there. So we we didn't have like a like, we used an agency there mm-hmm. who helped us replicate the model. So and the agency was English speaking, mm-hmm. so it was a little bit easier for me to interact with them.
0: Wow. Uh, this is a thing we're starting to have to navigate. I presume your French is really good. You couldn't have been at Acha Sen working at Oliver Wyman in Paris unless you could write very well. In exactly. French, my writing is terrible. I think I would have a lot of trouble. The grammar and stuff like that, just it's, punctuation, all those accents, egu and everything, I can't exact I can't remember it. And then in Chinese you never wrote it.
1: Chinese Chinese, yeah, I never I never really learned yet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, although my wife is, uh, was born in Beijing. So, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you have
0: some like family connections. Yeah, so Wait, now did you meet this person as part of that n- China adventure? N-
1: no, we met at um, MIT. Uh-huh. Ah, yeah.
0: wow, how cool. Okay, so, now in your story, we are at the moment you spend a year at this uh, marketplace food type thing, and then Alessandra calls you?
1: And then I, w- I wanted to move to Berlin because uh-huh. I'm so uh, my experience in Dusseldorf was great but I missed a little bit of that international exposure across different markets uh-huh. which is what really fascinates me
0: dull I found it very dull I spent four hours there this past summer I went to the Goethe Museum uh-huh. you know quiet I think I might have been the only visitor that day <laughs> very beautiful. Yeah. They had some of his early manuscripts, his diaries, all that kind of stuff, but is there anything else to do? Yeah. Anyhow, so you get to yeah. Berlin, so one okay, of the greatest cities in the world. And Fabulous, Berlin. unbelievable, everything's so good. Well, I, I Everything I changes.
1: Love Everything changes. It's it's mm. uh, it's probably like one of the most open-minded cities in Europe. Mm. Um, it's it's incredible. It's very welcoming to artists because the, um, the prices are very low, mm. so that's why you have a great artistic scene, a music scene. Uh, totally in, in Berlin
0: yeah it's probably the headquarters right and then I guess in summertime it's Ibiza or something <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> of exactly. electronic music of electronic yeah, music yeah. yeah, which is amazing yeah, yeah. so I am yeah so I started working HelloFresh um, as global head of um, performance marketing
0: so um, which is what you do for us you're the head of exactly. performance marketing global exactly. head maybe the international head Interplanetary. Yeah? Interplanetary. <laughs> Performance, sorry. We'll, we'll find out what that is in, in a sec. So, okay, you join. I mean, that's a very performance-driven business at...
1: Absolutely. At hello HelloFresh. I
0: mean, I guess they operate in six countries, 10, something like that?
1: Yeah, more than 10. I and a lot is
0: US, uh, a lot of direct marketing, a lot of events, street, not events, but like street. Street, exactly. Uh, sign ups at the grocery store and in the busy part of town, right? Yes,
1: exactly. It's kind of
0: crazy that that even works at all. I w- I'm curious about all this. So you, you, it was a headquarters role though?
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it was a headquarters role, so based in Berlin, uh, but I, I was lucky enough to work on uh, on a lot of uh, offline marketing channels, which offline. are uh, offline. So that includes, for instance, television, then it can include radio, direct mail, mm-hmm. um, et cetera,
0: et cetera. That's a new trend in, in like, Internet and e-commerce type companies. Probably over the last 10 years, that television is an effective tool for folks. Yeah. It used to be people would just focus on online and acquisition and the efficiency there. And certain businesses have gotten broad enough cons- and consumer enough that, you can actually shift share of behavior from offline patterns like calling on the phone or going to the store and just make them do it while they're watching the ad, just like open your phone.
1: For sure, and the the, the beauty of TV as a channel which actually was my, my favorite channel uh, at HelloFresh is that it's very um, mathematical. It's like you can really optimize very deeply Uh, the TV channel and um, make it a direct response channel. So you, you can treat it in the same way as you would treat more classical digital channels.
0: Really, is that just by buying like the lower cost, late night, random channel inventory, or this is like big wide reach stuff is also that measurable and responsive?
1: It's basically by creating, um, uh, by continuously optimizing the channels through uh, attribution. So the attribution is a very critical part of TV A coupon code
0: or a link or something.
1: Exactly. So there is a, the generally like a, cu- a coupon code attached <clears throat> to it. Although like arguably not, maybe not many people like would use that coupon code they see on the screen. Yeah. But you can see. You can tie from... it to
0: performance overall. So like a third exactly. or a quarter actually use it. But you're like, oh, this many. Because I've never used those coupon codes. That I know those ads reach me and sometimes they're influencing me. Uh, but I guess you use those as an indicator of total impact at some multiplier.
1: Exactly. And then you have a baseline, for instance, of website visits from. Uh, you have a baseline, so you compare the before the spot right. to after. Seven the spot. twenty-three
0: p.m. This much lift, mm-hmm. yeah. exactly. And then the geographic distribution—you find that from the, the coupon code, basically. Exactly. The relative.
1: So but. for for HelloFresh, it's been—I think—it's uh, b- the company has been able to really develop this channel very well mm-hmm. because of um, the very solid uh, data-driven culture of mm-hmm. the company per se, mm-hmm. which is based on really, like, measuring
0: everything. Of the different channels, for a consumer business, that is a subscription business, so the sign-up is hugely important, uh, and it's not a transactional where you have to kind of keep refreshing and reminding people, so, like, you can do the math on an account. But for that business, uh, which in some ways is similar to us, in some ways is different because of a much broader audience, different kind of tar- target customer, uh, how would you guesstimate the mix for, like, a typical consumer business without necessarily having to speak just about your HelloFresh experience? You know, it might be a little bit... Um, specific uh, like how how do the different channels work does online is is that where the action mostly is and you get your upside from some of the offline stuff or is really the action mostly in in the offline stuff
1: so for um, specifically for I would say probably notel and also the b2b side um, offline as a very important component Mm -hmm. I think in terms of really driving um, a lift in the numbers um, why is that for instance for for Notel, um we really care about having that interaction with uh, decision makers in the industry and those interactions are uh, way more powerful than you know people filling a form from an ad online yeah so um, I think I mean if
0: you could get face to face with every family that's ordering or shopping groceries, you could, but you just can't do that at scale.
1: Exactly, exactly. And also, the the, the difference from a decision making perspective is that for a in B two C, generally the the price tag for the decision. Right. The risk is, is
0: relatively low. You're not going to like lose a million dollars and have to move them a bunch of times.
1: Exactly. Well, for for B two B, generally those decisions mm-hmm. involve a, a bigger monetary investment. But
0: even in the HelloFresh case, the offline was very important
1: was very important actually was the it was the company that introduced gift cards in uh, in berlin so like HelloFresh is a super strong offline marketing uh presence and very well performing across countries mm. yeah
0: and okay so half the productivity was digital
1: and uh yeah i would say like i think uh, digital was definitely like also equally important than offline if we take online versus offline uh-huh. both were like uh, Uh, About half.
0: And then offline, how does that divide? Some of that is like street teams handing out flyers?
1: Exactly. So you have field marketing, Mm -hmm. then you have that mail, then you have TV, then you have like radio, podcast. uh, Mm -hmm. So there's
0: some media and some on the ground, and the media is two-thirds of the offline?
1: The media being like TV, radio.
0: And direct mail, yeah. So
1: yeah, I mean, it's definitely higher CAC kind Of channels, so in terms of investment, is definitely represent it's a big representation in the offline package. Uh-huh. Uh, but in terms of uh, and, and
0: it's more scalable, you can spend more there, so you're spending more per unit, but you can actually double or triple your spend. Whereas, how many street teams can you put in a city? It's like there's an upper bound,
1: exactly. Yeah. And also, with field marketing, you know, you need to pay attention to how like the audience perceives your interaction with them, it can so. be
0: annoying, and you have to really train and manage that. That's what you mean, right? Exactly, yeah. Some of these field teams, like we, we work right now at Times Square. Mm-hmm. And this place is crawling with quote-unquote field teams. I think they're like independent contractors yeah. who are either trying to sell you a selfie or get you on a tour bus. Oh my God, those guys are so annoying. Yeah,
1: yeah. so you need to always be very sensitive to, mm-hmm. um, to who you're talking to. But in the game
0: theory case, like, these annoying people will interact with their target one time only in life, period. How many tourists are coming back to Times Square nine times in a row? None but your teams are in front of my office every day for like a week, it, you can have a negative impact.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's very important also to um, to like, uh, understand that the best timing, right, mm-hmm. for these interactions and mm-hmm. the distribute
0: them maybe through time instead of like... So. And you were there for four years. No, I was there
1: for like uh, around two years. Oh, two, okay. Uh, two years. Okay. And then... This like, IPO
0: was recently, right? It was like last year or something? Yeah, exactly.
1: So, it was, yeah. Uh, so
0: And were. it's doing a lot better, I think, than Blue Apron...
1: Yeah, better product. Yeah. Yeah, the the product is like is better, and uh, the the company has really an international footprint, mm-hmm. and I think the international footprint is what is what helps a company improve <laughs> because you get learnings from different countries. Oh wow! And you you basically create playbooks to implement across across the world.
0: You would think it would be the opposite that it'd be hard to operationalize in different markets, but. The learnings and then also opportunities, perhaps, like in some markets you may find uh, surprisingly high demand or fast time to decision or much better retention or whatever, right? And you didn't exactly. know. Because, like, I think the food business in Germany is really hard. Germans don't seem to cook very much. They seem a very simple people. And so HelloFresh is a German origin business, but presumably the largest markets were not German.
1: Yeah, the largest market is the United States.
0: Right. Well, I mean, in absolute numbers, but yeah. also people's they just shop for groceries and yeah, so yeah, cook yeah, at home. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Relatively more, perhaps. The Germans are just weird. For Europeans, you would think that all Europeans cook a lot and they're very domestic, but they're yeah, not. But no, no. Drink beer, eat sausage. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in, not in Italy, though. But like, uh, yeah. Cook. Do the Italians cook? Italians cook. Yeah, they love to
0: cook. And how's the box business in in Italy?
1: You know, I I don't I don't think uh, we we're not with we HelloFresh doesn't have it. Uh, oh, interesting.
0: In, uh, and there must be reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, the. Um, Italy is probably not ready yet for that kind of uh, service. From a cultural standpoint, if mm-hmm. you were to tell an Italian, hey, I'm going to send you, you know, a lasagna in a box, and if I was They'd saying, be like oh, oh, outraged. Aye, aye. What are you saying? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. Um, okay, so how'd you get here?
1: So I got here... Um, going through san francisco first and then uh, we decided to uh from berlin we moved to san francisco and oh this is just
0: like you and your partner's family journey you're just like seeing uh, the world we exactly. want to move here we want to move there
1: we worked in san francisco for like eight months oh and then we decided that we wanted to move to new york to be more like closer to family um oh, I see. and so that's why we we moved we moved here uh-huh. yeah and i love this city it's incredible
0: so these last few months, uh, you've been figuring out what we do and don't do in performance marketing at an hotel, and there's a lot we don't do yet, and we're starting to do some things, and one day we're going to be amazing at everything. It's we're on a journey, um, but maybe before describing the sort of the bits and pieces, okay, now you know how the customer decides who are they, all that. Like, give me your theory of the the customer psychology and decision process.
1: So the customer psychology as a way longer cycle than, for instance, in B2C. Uh, Because in order to make decisions about like leasing a new office space, um, you know, it's an important decision. So Mm. people need to have, we need to have multiple touch points with them. One touch point, one coupon code, doesn't work. So- Right, um, yeah, and
0: you can't trial it. There's no going back. It's going to be really exactly, hard. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. So the point is that um, what we found like a lot of success uh, in is definitely the events channel um, because of the reason, like I mentioned before, like the very close interaction with the decision makers. Um, but the events channel is not enough by itself, right? So after we run an event, for instance, um, having multiple touch points with the same like, uh, contact or decision maker uh, is very important. So the follow up from the event uh, or from the first touch point is a critical component of, the, of the, ultimately the marketing and sales process. Right,
0: they have to hear from you again because they may not be up in the market at the moment you make first contact. I guess in that first contact or in that first event contact because I guess there's a story even before the event happens. They uh, come to the event, see the people, understand more deeply, ask some questions, are in the space, hopefully they get to see what it means, that the place is, that experience is really important, but they may not be in the market at the moment they show up, they might not even be in consideration, they might just be coming along for an interesting talk or an interesting person, interesting meal, whatever, and it's afterwards perhaps that they will enter that mindset, or maybe they'll even be triggered into that mindset from being there. What I understand from some of our teams in some cities is they are holding very regular events with certain decision makers and stakeholders in the community, maybe it's brokers, maybe it's CEOs and you have a breakfast or something, and like you get a bunch of interest at the end of the breakfast, not before. So you're like in there, and they're like, you know what, I have something for you. You have their attention and creativity, and you stimulate some kind of moment, and you get some leads, and then I suppose there's a tail of leads that happen after that?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's why the event is a critical component in this marketing paradigm, because mm-hmm. um, a digital ad doesn't allow you to understand the so what right if you attend an event maybe you're not convinced at the beginning but then when you hear people speak and you have this interaction you Mm -hmm. understand the so what and as you say you might be teased into you know doing having a Mm follow-up and the the digital experience can definitely optimize and will allow us you know to reach scale ultimately um but it's it's not going to be the marketing channel that will allow us to you know
0: like. Yeah, I mean, the funnel before the actual sales funnel, I guess, is awareness, interest consideration, and then shopping, something like that?
1: Yeah, decision.
0: Decision. And, yeah. Awareness, interest, consideration.
1: It's the AIDA, decision. right? So awareness. AIDA. 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 <laughs>
0: Awareness, interest, decision, decision action? action. Ah, okay. Yeah. So maybe that's the flow. And awareness is a place where digital does some work, press does some work. It's an over-the-air thing. It's very hard to measure whether awareness is moving. You don't know on an individual target if you got them. There's not any action related to an awareness behavior, uh, but it's what prepares for that moment of interest. And so I guess you might invite someone to an event before you know there's any interest them showing up, at the event doesn't necessarily signal interest. It's an, I think it's a correlate, it's probably there. You may stimulate or prompt a moment of real interest once you're there. And it's after that that they switch into some kind of decision mode where they're kind of considering and trying to decide something. That's when it starts looking like sales to us. Uh, they have to raise their hand or their representatives, brokers, who I think are a similar community that we like to work with. but. They have the same thought process, right? They're always like out there. A lot of them now know about us, and I guess they're relatively interested, but their motivation really starts when their client tells them, hey, I need something. Mm -hmm. Then they go into decision mode, and at that decision mode, we might provide certain venues. And even that continues to be marketing, even though our sales teams are active. That's where the branded environments and the support materials uh, play a role in influencing their thought process.
1: Exactly.
0: And uh, we have have the luxury in our business that, that decision and action closely follow, that it is one continuous train of action, isn't it? That's Unlike it. Uh, when I grab a coupon out of a HelloFresh mail or I just leave it on my desk for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, exactly. So when, when we are at the decision point, right, like we, then you really have like a conviction by someone that like this product might be mm-hmm. right for them, right? So mm-hmm. then it's uh, way tighter.
0: So do you think we're yet at a point of applying your fanciest econometric models to our work? Yeah, we I are mean,
1: i mean we're that de- i mean definitely i want to start a up on that i mean mm. there is a, not only like game theory which i think it's a it's a framework that can be applied to any matter but also the um, system system dynamics is like a very interesting discipline it's more on the strategy uh, from a strategy strategy perspective but it's also it's also very useful mm. to solve some conundrums, right, mm-hmm. in business or in, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think, I think it's, I'm um, looking forward to, to starting. Well,
0: these first two tools are, are really powerful tools for reasoning about situations, even when uh, when there isn't a ton of data. Uh, but in general, you need a certain amount of data to, to do, you know, whatever, the big data econometric kind of stuff. For sure. And I wonder if we're, how much data, do, do you think we have enough yet, or are we still reasoning by, by, by logic and by, by strategy and trying to collect information that lets us test between big ideas?
1: So we, we have the data.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we need to, to structure the data. Mm. I think that's the next step. But the data is there. Mm. So I think as long as we work well on our structure and attribution, that, that's where like, the power of the decision uh, appears.
0: The calculations happen on the balcony. Yes. The decisions happen on the dance floor. Absolutely. What do you think about that way of thinking about it?
1: That's, uh, that's great. That's, that's the great interaction between the global and the local markets, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So, so. And, and,
0: and as you were saying in your experience at, at, at HelloFresh and others, I mean, of zooming out across markets and seeing all the different mechanics and then being able to take lessons actually from all the different markets and in, in sort of crossing them around and then creating some kind of standardized playbook with certain calibrations, and I, uh, I'm excited. Me too. Thank you for being on Hello, Hello, Valentina.
1: Thank you, Mom. I
0: think, I do think it was, I think it was the best ever.